Hello, I'm David Kramer, the Executive Director of the Bush Institute, the results-oriented policy arm of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Overheard at the Bush Center brings you the latest conversations about the world's most pressing challenges. Thanks for joining us as our experts talk to leading policymakers, business leaders, and people on the front lines of change about issues like immigration, economic opportunity, education, democracy, and the importance of free societies. Freedom is under attack worldwide as many countries contend with democratic backsliding and authoritarian regimes flex their muscles in and beyond their own borders. On November 16th, the Bush Institute, in partnership with Freedom House and the National Endowment for Democracy, hosted a conference on the struggle for freedom. The event gathered activists, experts, and leaders who assessed threats to freedom and offered recommendations for the cause of liberty. They also examined the global struggle for freedom, pushing back against the authoritarian threat and how the U.S. can help support democracy and human rights abroad. That's up next on Overheard at the Bush Center. Welcome. It's great to be here. It's just a complete honor for me uh, and for Freedom House to be partnering with the Bush Institute and with the National Endowment for Democracy. If, if you allow me a point of personal privilege, I know from personal experience how committed the Bushes are to these issues. On one of the last trips I took uh, with, when I was a reporter at the Washington Post was to Asia with Mrs. Bush and President Bush, and I went with Mrs. Bush to the border, in Thailand border, and she's been caring so much about the, uh, the terrible things that are happening in, in Burma today. And, and President Bush, I was just saying to him backstage, I, I, I interviewed him, I had the good fortune of interviewing him on, on Air Force One going to the Beijing Olympics, and it was such a hopeful time that maybe things would turn around in China. But sadly, it's not been the case. And so uh, uh, it's, just, it's just a great personal honor for me to be here and to be with these incredible freedom fighters. This is, I think this is the best panel of the whole conference because we're going to be talking to people who uh, have devoted their whole lives to working on the front lines of freedom. And that's, uh, that, that, that is the most inspirational part. Many of you might know Freedom House as a group that does a lot of research and analysis for freedom in the world, but, what we, but really most of our budget is devoted to working on the ground with frontline defenders, journalists, and others who are struggling in authoritarian countries just doing what the purpose of this conference is about. And I think what you're going to hear today is what gives me hope for the future of freedom. If you look at the, what's happening today in Iran with hundreds of thousands, millions of people protesting uh, second-class citizenship for one half of the population, ongoing protests in Myanmar, in Hong Kong shortly before the crackdown. You had three million people in Hong Kong hitting the streets uh, to protest the denial of their basic freedom. That is what should give us hope because uh, freedom is a natural order of things, not unfreedom. So what we're going to talk today with four incredible uh, human rights activists, uh, uh, Ivan from Zimbabwe, Natalia from Russia, Rodrigo from Venezuela, and Nuri from China, Uyghurs, I'm not sure exactly where you're from, but <laughs> it's great to have you all with us. And I thought to make this real, I'd like to ask each of you just very briefly to give us a little sense of how you came to this issue and what the issues are in the country where you come from. I'll start with you, Natalia, in Russia. 
Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, it's a huge honor to be here on this panel with uh, such prominent speakers. And it was such a lifetime experience to meet President Bush. My activism actually started during his presidency. And um, uh, when I was seven, uh, President Reagan uh, called my home country, uh, then Soviet Union, as an evil empire. And almost 30 years later, Russia, the uh, successor of the Soviet Union, um, is uh, again the evil empire, the country occupier, the country aggressor, the country terrorist. What happened uh, this year with this uh, full-scale invasion on Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable, unforgettable, and unforgivable. <coughs> and as everybody else, um, we pro-democracy Russians are outraged by what is happening, but also very ashamed and also understand our huge responsibility and also historic opportunity to change the situation in Russia for better. I, um, I had to pay quite a high price for my activism. I had to flee my home country you know, 10 years ago on a 48-hour notice, otherwise I would be in jail for 20 years just by working for a democracy promotion organization. So here I am still fighting for a free Russia and still believing in it because the world needs a free Russia and Ukraine needs and everybody else needs. Can you just say a quick word about what is actually happening inside Russia today to human rights defenders? Because a lot of the focus has been on, properly on what's happening in Ukraine, but, but Russia is also attacking its own people. Just say just a quick word about that. Exactly, actually, um, <clears throat> Russians were the first victims of Putin's regime, and uh, uh, what is happening now is the same uh, what was happening all these years of Putin's presidency, just on a larger scale. We have always had more and more repressive legislation, and now it's a complete laughable matter with the Constitution completely rewritten um, according to the Kremlin's needs. We have always had um, uh, jailing of uh, political dissidents, uh, dozens first and hundreds and uh, thousands and now hundreds of thousands. We have never had such a huge number of political prisoners uh, since the late uh, Soviet Union. Uh, Putin's regime has always uh, conducted uh, political assassination. Uh, we pro you probably all heard about a journalist, Anna Politkovskaya, or a um, Russian opposition leader, Boris Nemtsov, but there are hundreds of journalists and uh, uh, civic actors who were killed um, including outside of Russia. Um, Putin's regime always have forced many Russians like me, uh, with those who are aspiring for democracy and freedom, to flee our home country. We are now in exile. Again, it started with dozens, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, now millions of Russians are in exile. Basically, the entire independent media and civil society of Russia are in exile. But at the same time, um, we see uh, that despite the perception that Russians support uh, what Putin is doing and that Russians are not protesting, it's not true. It's, there is a huge underreporting of this issue. Uh, there are so many Russians who protest every day. Basically, um, uh, from uh, day one of this full-scale invasion, there was only one day, June 13th, when no Russian was detained for the anti-war activities. Russians um, are setting conscription centers on fire derailing trains, uh, spreading information, uh, just uh, writing graffiti, whatever they can uh, to, to protest this war, and uh, this uh, is actually growing. Those who are in exile, um, they also do a lot to uh, try to change public opinion inside Russia. Um, uh, they help Ukrainians. We have to do it, we do it a lot, but we have to do it in a very discreet way. We don't do it openly. Maybe that's why, again, the world doesn't see our efforts and says that it's that we are not doing everything. 
But yes, uh, the struggle is happening. Uh, and while there is a genocide of Ukrainians at the moment, simultaneously there is an ethnocide of <coughs> ethnic minorities. Russia is not only 11 times own country or 80 plus something with all this occupied territories country, but also uh, there are 190 ethnic minorities and they are being used as cannon fodder in this um, war for the so-called Russian world that Vladimir Putin is imposing. It's the same colonial war against Ukraine because, again, Putin's regime doesn't respect Ukrainian identity, culture, language, the same way that the Kremlin has never respected culture and language and identity of all these ethnic minorities. And it was a very deliberate policy of impoverishing them all. And now they've been the first to be sent to Ukraine. If you are from some republic of Tuva, for example, your chances to be killed in Ukraine 10 times more than for any ordinary Russian. If you are from my native republic, from Buryatia, nine times more, from Chechnya, three times more, and so on and so forth. So it's quite a tragedy that it's happening at the moment. Thank you. Let me turn to Nuri, if I could. Um, Nuri, one of the greatest human rights abominations in the world is taking place in the region of Western China, where you're from. Tell us a little bit about what's happening there and also your own personal story and what's happened to you and your family. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by thanking President Bush and Mrs. Bush spending time with us uh, before we came down here. And I wanted to thank uh, the Bush Institute, specifically to David, for allowing me to be part of this uh, event. <clears throat> I was born in a re-education camp during the height of the Cultural Revolution uh, 52 years ago. I came to the United States as a student in 1995, granted asylum, but I never thought that I had to talk about the way that I was brought to this world as much as I have in the last six years. The reason is that the Chinese managed to brought back the history, uh, the camp history, collective punishment, targeting ethno-religious groups using most sophisticated technology that the world has not seen. So uh, today, um, uh, China has been engaging in uh, acts of genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, as have been, has been uh, recognized two successive U.S. administration, nine governments plus European Union. Uh, disturbingly, this genocide is in its sixth year. Uh, this is the, the largest incarceration of ethno-religious group since the Third Reich. The world has not seen anything like this, but the international community has not shown a courage to defend the Uyghur freedom and say no to this kind of collective punishment. Uh, they never again uh, rings hollow today because of the tepid, meandering responses that the international community has shown. To the Uyghur people, this is more than survival. The Uyghur people have paid the ultimate price. The Uyghur people have been enslaved in a global supply chain. Uh, based on a report uh, published by Australian Strategic Partnership Institute, 83 global brands have been using Uyghur slave labor. That includes the PPE, the, uh, the beauty products, the cotton undershirt, solar panel. Uh, and also on top of that, the Chinese government uh, separated 800,000 to 1 million Uyghur children, as reported in the New York Times, and sent them to state run orphanage, they call it boarding school. In essence, China is committing genocide against the Uyghur children. On top of that, uh, they have been waging war on the Uyghur women. Based on their own information, uh, in just one year, population, uh, natural growth of Uyghur population declined by 65%. So, so they, they, every legal definition in the book uh, on genocide 
is right there in our, uh, right in front of our eyes. Because of the, the business community's influence, not only here in the United States, around the world, particularly in Europe, the governments have not been really uh, took up this historical responsibility, the task that history assigned to us, to say no to the Chinese. Instead, the business community has been lobbying against our government. In the case of the, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce publicly opposed to it, uh, in addition to several companies lobbying Congress. And in Europe, it's the same situation. So uh, the Uyghur people looking for a support. Uh, and this is not only happening in China, this is also happening in our country. The transnational repression, for example. In my own case, I just published a book called uh, No Escape. The reason I called No Escape is that I have not been able to escape that uh, persecution, even though I'm an American citizen and now a US official. And this is a very common problem for the Uyghur communities around the world. To this day, this may be a news to you that the Uyghurs, most Uyghurs around the world don't even know if their loved ones are still breathing because contacting the family members will be uh, part of the government collect data collection and that can result into punishment. So a few years ago, the Uyghur families, including my own, told us don't call, don't contact, and don't return under any circumstances. So, so the Uyghurs uh, paid a heavy price and what has been taken away from the Uyghur people cannot be returned, the families are broken, as the Chinese officials publicly said, they need to break the lineage, connection, the roots, so that they have delivered this. So the international community need to pay closer attention to it. And I recently visited Taiwan, and my message to the Taiwanese people was, uh, was quite simple. You must study the Uyghur genocide to make sense of this regime's capability. And what plan do they have for you? Because as you know, Mike, the Chinese ambassador to France said that the Taiwanese people need to be re-educated. I know exactly how, what re-education means. Hmm. Re-education is indoctrination, denouncing your religious, uh, religious belief, your way of life, just adopting Xi Jinping thoughts as a, re a new religion, as they have been promoting. So, uh, so it, it's, uh, this is no longer about just the Uyghur people. The, the consumer products that we touch, the technology, the technical equipment that we use, uh, and also it has, goes to the heart of global leadership, justice, accountability. If you let this go with impunity, then uh, it makes me worry about the future. Yes. Nuri, thank you very much for <clears throat> your story, but also for raising this issue of transnational repression, which I think is an important point for the audience to understand, because what we are increasingly seeing and documenting at Freedom House is authoritarian countries led by China, but also other countries going after people like yourself who are living inside democracies. And democracies need to do more to protect them. It's, it's, not, it's China, it's Russia, yep. it's uh, Rwanda, it's Turkey, Saudi Arabia. So uh, thank you for raising that point. Maybe we can come back to that. Because I think one point about these four brave souls is that they're, they're also at risk here in America. Thank you. Um, I'd like to turn to Rodrigo and Ivan, because I think both of you come from countries that honestly were doing quite relatively well a while ago and have really suffered under uh, uh, dictatorship. Uh, particularly, I think about Venezuela, which I think, according to Freedom House, I think 30 years ago was a thriving democracy. It's been destroyed by, by Chavez and now the Maduro regime. So, Rodrigo, let's start with you. Give us a little sense of uh, what is happening inside Venezuela uh, and what what, what people of, of, of goodwill should know about? 
Thank you, Mike, and thank you for the Bush Institute for this great opportunity to raise awareness of what is happening in Venezuela. So Venezuela, in a nutshell, uh, we were awarded this year by to be the number one refugee crisis of the world right now, uh, even more than Syria and Ukrainian immigration crisis. More than 8 million people have left the country. This is almost a third of our population, and it's an ongoing crisis. Uh, imagine that between 2014 and 2019, the average of Venezuelans who tried to cross the border of the U.S. by foot was 127. Only in September, more than 33,000 Venezuelans tried to cross the border of the U.S. by foot because they, they cannot tolerate the, the, the hardness and the situation of Venezuela. 3,000 Venezuelans crossed the border, crossed the Darien jungle. The Darien jungle is a jungle that is between Panama and Colombia and Panama. It's one of the most dangerous jungles in the world. And these Venezuelans know that they can be raped, tortured, killed, kidnapped in that jungle and die. But they prefer to take that risk. Imagine the level of suffering that they're having back in Venezuela to take that risk to go and cross a jungle uh, for months walking with their kids in their hands. I know about this. I have to leave my country because I also was uh, uh, persecuted. I have been detained three times. And I also have to thank that I'm here maybe also thanks to the Bush Institute because uh, in the past I was supported by the former CEO, James Glassman, but also David Kramer, the new executive director, helped me <coughs> to get out of Venezuela. I want to tell this story because I think it's very important in how meaningful this event is. Um, sorry. When I was in Venezuela, I couldn't get out because I had prohibition to leave the country. And I have double citizens. I have an Italian passport and a Venezuelan passport. But when they detained me, they took my passport. So I went to the Italian embassy and asked for my, if they didn't give me a, a new passport for me. They said, no, we can't because the regime has your passport. Say, come on, guys, I'm Italian. I need, I need my passport. I need to find a way to leave this country. And they say, no, we can't. And I say, oh, man, like, you know, I don't know why, what's wrong with Italy. You know, I say, well, first Mussolini, now this, you know, I don't know why you're always in the wrong side of history. They didn't even want to support President Guaido, no, like Slovakia. Uh, support Guaido, and you know, we have the third largest community of Italians in, outside Italy, so shame on them. But uh, David, when he was the president of Freeman House, he went and visited the ambassador of Italy in, in Washington, and he convinced them uh, to, to, to give me a new passport when, once I was in Colombia. So I managed a way to cross the border walking. I spent a week in a refugee camp. And, and, and then also the Embassy of Italy, finally, and thanks to the support of David Kramer, um, they, they support me to arrive to Bogota and they give me a new passport. And that's why I'm here in the U.S. So I know about what it means to leave everything behind. And uh, I don't know. This is, uh, I hope one day we will get rid of this tragedy. And I know we'll win. But it will happen only because of the support of an institute like this and amazing people who are here at the audience. I think without their support, uh, Damon and all, all, all of the people who are here, it's impossible to do this fight alone. It's impossible. It's just too hard. Fighting against a dictatorship is the stronger, the most difficult fight that a society can have in their entire life. And doing it alone, it's impossible. We see it in Ukraine right now. We're seeing with the Iranian, they need our support. And, and I know that so Venezuela will be free, Cuba will be free, Nicaragua will be free, 
but it will only happen if we start to continue and really commit to fight all together until we recover democracy all around the world. Thank you for that. Ivan, I think you're probably the person on this panel who was most recently in your country of origin, because you, you're telling me you left uh, Zimbabwe in 2020, so just a couple of years ago. And that's a country uh, with a lot of promise and hope, but has sadly you know, been, been a dicta effectively a dictatorship. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happening in your country and, 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 and why the situation has been the way it is. Well, thank you, Mike. And, and, and again, you know, you know, many thanks to uh, Bush Institute, um, the, uh, the NED and Freedom House. And I've had contact with all three organizations at some level with the work that I've done. Um, Zimbabwe is both one of those places that gives you a lot of hope but also that gives a lot of disappointment at exactly the same time. Um, and it's hope because you see what ordinary people who have nothing but their lives and voices can do or are prepared to do to stand up to a regime that has oppressed them for many years. Um, I entered this story in 2016 where I sat in my small office as a church pastor um, and recorded a four-minute video talking about why our nation had been destroyed the way it had been destroyed and why Zimbabweans needed to come around uh, you know, the story of what this flag for Zimbabwe Zimbabwe promises, uh, you know, Zimbabwe's freedom, prosperity, uh, you know, the opportunity to contribute as a citizen. And we were not getting any of that. And we built a citizen's movement that spoke truth to power, that challenged the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe. And from 2016 all the way up until 2020, when I eventually left Zimbabwe, I was jailed a total of eight times, spent many months in the maximum security prison, beaten and tortured and threatened uh, uh, until, you know, you know, if we didn't stop, but we didn't. And what we saw were people who had been cowed into submission for years, finding their voice and their strength to stand up and speak truth to power. And we're at a place right now where Robert Mugabe's successor has continued the legacy of violence, the legacy of destroying democratic institutions, the legacy of uh, creating poverty. In 2008, actually, Zimbabwe had the, one of the record inflation figures. We had 280 million percent inflation. Uh, we ended up with a $100 trillion note as the largest banknote in our nation. And nobody said anything in terms of standing up. I mean, there were politicians, that uh, opposition that was fighting against it, but ordinary people were afraid. And we have begun that journey again. As we speak, Zimbabwe has one of, in fact, I think we are still number one with the world's highest inflation rate. And so we, we're at a place where we are needing once again the voices of ordinary people to stand up because that is the only way, Mike, that, uh, that you can begin to see some form of focus come back on Zimbabwe in terms of globally. But that's the only way that you can begin to see an opportunity for people to free themselves is if people are empowered to stand up and speak truth to power. So that's where we're at in Zimbabwe. The, the struggle and the fight continues, but I'm afraid to say that it is in a place where we have been pushed back and are hard pressed, but the, the actual fight continues, raising people up and training people and how to, how, to, how to stand up and speak for themselves. Let me ask you a follow-up question, if I may, and I'm going to come down the line and ask each mm. of you a similar question. Um, what do activists on the ground in these places want from the United States? You know, there's a, there's a debate 
we saw the poll today about you know, what Americans think about, mm -hmm. but, but what do activists on the ground want from the United States? I think there are a number of things. Um, one of the most important things that stands out for activists and those of us that find ourselves in a place where we are confronting these uh, regimes is for the, for the United States to, to be firm in not associating themselves with these <clears throat> regimes. Uh, you know, one of, one of my good friends, Masyalinejad, who really is part of the, the, the protests in Iran and has been building the women's movement in Iran for many years, coined a phrase a couple of weeks ago. And what she said was, we are not asking the United States to come and save us, but we're asking them to stop saving those who oppress us. And that's a very important aspect of what we do, is that these moments that seem to provide legitimacy for the oppressors really hurt our efforts, and they give a little bit more confidence to those who oppress us that they are still accepted, that they are still part of the, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, democratic community, when they are not practitioners of democracy you know, at all. So I want to put that as one of those important things that activists uh, uh, would, would, uh, would find valuable from the U.S. as a government. Thank you for that. Natalia, similar version of the same question. Uh, Vladimir Putin has been entrenched in power now for about 22 years. And as you said in your opening remarks, uh, there are thousands of people who are being jailed in Russia just for uh, complaining and speaking out about the, the war in Ukraine. What, what do you think people who are now in jail in Russia want for the United States? What, 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 what is your recommendation? When you have an opportunity to talk to a, talk to a congressperson or a, someone from the administration, what do you tell them? Well, all these uh, political prisoners and any activists who are in Russia now, inside the country or in exile, they all want uh, the same. Uh, they want, um, they understand that, again, the responsibility is on us to change the situation in our own country. We have always, for years, uh, have been warning the entire world uh, how uh, corrupt, uh, criminal, and murderous this regime is. And we, like the Putin's regime is that strong because it was allowed to be that strong, because there were so many enablers, <laughs> because our voices were not heard, um, mostly. And uh, uh, it was very, very disappointing. And uh, also, um, I remember becoming the so-called uh, informal embassy for pro-democracy Russian movement uh, here in the United States when we were bringing all these uh, activists and politicians and journalists, experts uh, to meet with uh, the U.S. Congress, the State Department, the think tanks. What Russians were saying, say, uh, help Ukraine, first of all. Uh, we need this uh, good, positive example that it's possible to be a good democratic country in our, in our uh, region of Eurasia. Uh, so this is very important. Another thing that we are always asking is um, uh, don't take democracy and freedom for granted. This is something that we all have to fight every day, every second. If left unattended, if there is no attention to it, it like, such forces as uh, Putin's Russia or any other uh, dictatorial regimes can just really very fast break it. Or you can break it inside your own country very fast. Uh, it didn't happen in Russia overnight. We didn't wake up to a dictatorship. Uh, but day by day by day, slowly, it was such a creepy authoritarianism that every day we were losing some freedom. First of all, freedom of speech. This was the first thing that Vladimir Putin did. Being a KGB <coughs> officer, he knew how important it is 
to control information. If you control information, you control narratives and you control the society. The television made him out of a very bored, um, like no one, like bureaucrat, such a huge macho fighting with, like, uh, with uh, wrestling with animals, bears, whatever, flying with birds and so on. So he really like made his image very fast and he understood how it's possible through television and other means to just zombify the population on a 24-7 basis. Um, and uh, so again, uh, and then uh, you lose, uh, when you cannot speak, you lose uh, um, your right to choose how you protest, the format or space and all that. Then you uh, don't have a voice uh, vote uh, to, to elect some leader. And eventually you lose freedom to leave even. Um, so this is a very important uh, lesson from all us uh, that again, please um, treasure your, <laughs> your values, treasure your uh, institutions. Uh, this is very, very important. Thank you. Rodrigo, there's, uh, you know, Venezuela has been a bit in the news lately because uh, there seems to be some question about whether the administration you know, wants to maybe have a more of a, uh, a dialogue with the Maduro regime, particularly over oil. Um, but what is, what, what is your view of this matter? What do you think the United States ought to do to be supportive of freedom and democracy? in Venezuela. So going back, thank you, Mike, and th going back to the previous argument, it's impossible to do it alone. And I think we have always been very close to recover democracy, and we will. But it has to be thanks to the leadership of the U.S. I think that Europe needs to help the U.S. in this type of leadership. They already uh, understood what it means to have, to rely on, uh, on the energy source, on a dictatorship. And now they're paying that price by doing business with Putin for all these years. Now they are also in, in, in the middle of a crisis. So is, that is one of the first lessons of this horrible war. I don't understand why, like the next day, the current administration take a plane and send two persons to go and, and go and start to rely on Venezuela, another dictatorship, as a source of energy. It just doesn't make any sense is actually the opposite of what we're living, living right now. So, and then also doing it b behind the opposition. And that's bad. You know, if, if you're committed to someone, you cannot start doing business with their enemy on, the, on their back. So, I believe this will change. I have, I cannot, you know, have more profound admiration for American people and for this country. And, I'm, and I know we'll win thanks to the support of the US. But these things need to change. And these things need to be addressed and criticized. Um, there have to be more loyalty to, to, to your partners. Um, so yeah, I criticize that a lot. Uh, I think uh, Venezuelan opposition will win this fight. Uh, but right now, the real supporters of the fights are people who are here in the room, who are helping us to, you know, you know re-strategize and get together and get the strength to find another uh, fight. So, you know, I think we're, we're in good hands thanks to, you know, institutes like this, but definitely uh, there have to be some improvement in the actual strategy with Venezuela, with the current administration. Okay. Nuri, you painted a very bleak picture in your opening remarks about the situation for the Uyghur people. And I think it was very distressing, even outrageous, the events with the Human Rights Council uh, a few weeks ago yeah. where China <clears throat> successfully blocked 
you know, using coercion and leverage on, 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 on different countries to prevent the Human Rights Council from even considering this as a human rights problem. <clears throat> so, and by the way, as someone who studied genocide when I was at the Holocaust Museum, this is often the, the approach of other countries. They, right. they turn their eyes. So what, 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 what is your advice? What can the United States do to, you know, to, to bring greater pressure to relieve the suffering of the Uyghur people? Um, I have been working on uh, human rights issues almost for two decades now. I never thought that the United States government will be able to do what it has done um, in two, both previous and current administration, passing two piece, pieces of legislation, uh, Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, unthinkable. Uh, and also over 100 punitive sanctions, including GlobeMag, uh, visa ban, uh, entity list that includes, by the way, a Chinese military medical academy and its 11 affiliates that's <coughs> developed brain control weaponry to be used against the ethno-religious groups in China. Uh, this was last December. Um, there bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress. Uh, in, both the, in, in the case of both bills, uh, we had unanimous consent in the Senate, more than 400 votes in the, in the House. Uh, and this is remarkable. And also, um, we have a lot of uh, support from the society, uh, more people learning about the uh, the atrocities being committed against Uyghurs. But what is lacking is the political will to go harder using American power, uh, go on offensive. Uh, we have been uh, reacting to what we've been learning uh, uh, from the Chinese behavior, both in Hong Kong and, and, and East Turkestan. Uh, but we have not been strong enough. So the way that we have to deal with this, um, now the U.S. has done its due. Uh, we need to bring the Europeans in, into this uh, endeavor for sure. Otherwise, we cannot do this alone. The problem is massive because this involves technology, this involves the supply chain crisis, this involves the other global issues. So uh, uh, that's one area that I, I'd like to see improvement. Could I ask just a follow-up question, if I yeah. may? And what do you say to those people who say we can't go harder because we need China's cooperation on global warming or trade or, or other issues that are kind of these global challenges. What, what do you say about that? That is a misleading uh, narrative. Um, the American people should be vigilant when they hear uh, we, need to, uh, we need to secure China's cooperation climate crisis so that we need to tone down. This actually happened last year. Um, you ask about what people expect. I think this is something that needs to be talked about, the coherence, the messaging is very important. Word matters. Last summer, uh, the administration dropped the use of uh, genocide and crimes against humanity because some people in the administration thinking that it will help the Chinese to back to the table. It didn't happen. So if you look at the Chinese statements, starting from Deng Xiaoping and in the last 10 years, they've been clear on two things. One, they have been facing foreign encirclement, and they have to do anything and everything to push back. That includes freedom, religious freedom, human rights, all the you know, free press. And then the other thing is that they wanted to uh, uh, make the issues such as climate, environmental concerns as an adjunct to economic development. So when we deal with the Chinese, we we'll always forget that this is not their priority. This is the way that they're buying out time and, and getting concession from the United States and our uh, democratic allies. 
That's misleading. And also the other piece, this is a policy, uh, 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 a, a, a strategic approach by Beijing on these issues. The other piece is also very important. When you talk about the, uh, the climate crisis, the activists are forgetting that China enslaves human beings to make solar panels. They use dirty coal. Uh, it, with that kind of practices, and the United States does not use slave labor, does not use uh, dirty coal making solar panels, and does not uh, subsidize those industries. So it's impossible to compete with a country like China. So environmental activists uh, need to remember that we can fight both genocide and ecocide at the same time. All right, I'd like to ask another line of question. I'm gonna start this time with Rodrigo because you and I were chatting about this a little bit before the panel. Uh, there's a so-called authoritarian playbook, right? Yeah. It's uh, that, that's gotten quite common around the world. Uh, attacking civil society, shutting down the independent press, uh, throwing opposition in jail. There's a range of tactics that are common to authoritarians. But is there a dem democracy playbook? And from each of your experiences, are there things that you see that are working on the ground to help push back that should be supported and encouraged and that could be models you know, for a, a, a democratic revival around the world. How, how do you see that, Rodrigo? Yes, well, considering that, I remember one quote from, I read from President Reagan who said that uh, a democracy is away, one generation away from extinction. I think that was a prophecy for Venezuela. We used to have the stronger democracy in, in, the, in the region, and now, you know, we don't have it anymore. And we have tried everything in this, in this, in, during these 21 years. And I think um, that democracy itself, it looks like it doesn't have the capacity to defend itself, at least not the way we know it, at least maybe not as with, without really strong institutions like here in the U.S. Uh, so definitely there's more need, that needs to be done uh, for democracies that we take it that now are you know, we take it for granted, but in the future, I don't think they will uh, endure if we don't fight back. And the best way to fight back for me is training people in nonviolence. I don't see any type of change that will occur in Venezuela or all around the world if we don't train activists to know how to get rid <laughs> of a regime. We believe that you know, fight against the regime. You, you we use politics and politicians. They're not. Equipped to fight against a dictator, you need other type of tools, and that's why uh, I've been working on this on training. And every time we are very close to get uh, freedom in Venezuela, is because we're being in a non-violent discipline. And the good part is this also a gift for humanity from the from the U.S. Martin Luther King is one of the uh, most important uh, representatives of this philosophy, but also the, the maybe two intellectuals that are developed more this tool are Peter Ackerman, who passed away some years ago, some months ago, but also Gene Sharp. And this, so this is a, an American legacy. But until uh, millions of activists around the world are really trained in these tools, I don't think we will never find uh, freedom because it cannot come on from the outside. The outside, it's a, a requirement because it's impossible to do it alone, but it's not enough. And as long as our activists all around the world are not trained millions of people in this philosophy, I don't think we will never see change. 
or if we see change, it will not endure. Like what happened with Bolivia, what happened with Zimbabwe. You know, it's not only about bringing down dictatorship, it's like really transforming society and arriving to, and to have a strong democracy. So that's, uh, I think, it's the most important thing to do right now uh, because we work with the tools that we have in our head. And these tools have been developed, but I've seen, have talked with thousands of activists all around the world, and they really uh, do not have the, uh, the, the, the required education to deal with what we're dealing right now uh, and get freedom. It's like getting, um, when you want to get a, a, you know, someone to repair you from a, a surgery, uh, you need someone who is an expert. We are always using our intuition to record democracy. Intuition is not enough. And that's why I think we're failing so far. I think that's what needs to be addressed to improve the state of the world. Thank you. Natalia, what, 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 what have we learned about what works? Well, uh, I believe solidarity is our biggest weapon against any dictatorship. This is very important. <clears throat> and I actually never thought that uh, not like you, uh, we heard the um, uh, ambassador of Ukraine um, to the US yesterday, and she was saying what Ukraine needs more than ever now, weapons, weapons, weapons. For Russian pro-democracy uh, forces, what we need now is moral support. We need to be embraced as a part of the democratic world. What we see now, it's a lot of cancellation of all Russians, saying all Russians are bad, they didn't protest, they, they elected Putin, they support the war in Ukraine and things like that. And it really demotivates, demoralizes uh, Russian pro-democracy, anti-war, anti-regime community, because again, for years we have been warning about this regime. For years we have been asking not to put um, trade, um, I don't know, Nord Stream 2, uh, uh, business as usual, higher than human rights and than democracy and than freedom. And uh, before my exile, I haven't even imagined um, how deep and strong Kremlin's tentacles are in the West everywhere. Before I started to be... Um, abroad and started to, again, uh, research all this. Again, we didn't even know that Kremlin's influence is so huge. It's now easy to give this example because everybody understands what is a COVID pandemic and how fast it can be <laughs> spread anywhere. The same dictatorship, it's such the same contagious disease that if you don't stop it, it can spread everywhere. It can completely like contaminate everything. Um, and uh, this is why uh, what the Kremlin was doing most of all is targeting the very core of the Western society, the very fabric of the Western society, the rule of law, and spreading disinformation and spreading its cryptocracy and everything else. Um, so this is a very important ask uh, for us that uh, don't judge people by ethnicity or citizenship, but judge by values. And we want to be a part of the Western society. We have always been. We have the same values. And Thank you. We're agents of change. I'm just well, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Yes. I want to get. I want to make sure Ivan and Nuri have a chance to answer this question. Mm. Ivan, what are you? Uh, what, what, what are the lessons you've learned from your long experience in activism about what works and what doesn't work? in terms of fighting against authoritarianism? I think just piggybacking on what Rodrigo and Natalia have said is the, the underestimation of the citizens of a nation to act on, on their, uh, you know, on, for their own freedom is something that needs to change. Uh, people, when they have the right tools and the right connections, are willing to act. They're willing to get involved to fight for their democracy and for their freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you were talking about the playbook. So what is the playbook? It begins with a 
a solidarity or a network of democracy actors working together in the same way that autocrats are working together, where we share information, where we share tactics, where we teach each other, because you will find that some things that happen in one part of the world will begin to happen in, in another part of the world. For example, in Zimbabwe, we're starting to see the introduction of what they call the, the PVO bill, the Private Voluntary Organization Bill that seeks to shut down civic uh, society. So how do we, how do we revive that? Who else has done this? What can we learn from that? So that's number one. We've got to get that right. And I believe that that's beginning to happen now, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the connectedness globally. In fact, it's part of the work I do now at Renew Democracy Initiative, connecting dissidents, uh, democracy dissidents and democracy advocates to support each other, but also to, to move the agenda of their different struggles into the places that matter globally. Thank you. Okay, Nori, I'm going to give you the last word. and I'll I would like to know in general what you think we've learned from the struggle for Uyghur rights in your, in, in your experience. But specifically, I'd like to press you on what you think the potential for the targeted sanctions that you referenced earlier. Because that's one of the new things that Freedom House and others have been involved with trying to use these so-called Magnitsky sanctions to go after individual human rights violators, not just countries in general. So to talk about what you, what you think the lessons learned are. Um, what, what, what worked for the Uyghur people and Uyghur cause specific in the last four or five years? One is storytelling, uh, the courage. Uh, we have a, a courageous group of uh, camp survivors, both uh, here in the United States and in Europe, have been traveling, speaking with senior leadership, uh, sharing their stories, putting a human face on this tragedy. And it has been very powerful. And during the process of uh, uh, legislating those two bills, we had camp survivors, the Uyghur American community knocking doors uh, in bipartisan spirit, uh, not making it that's also one uh, accomplishment. The human rights and freedom is nonpartisan, let alone being bipartisan. So that message really resonated. Uh, in the U.S. Congress, uh, in, in the executive branch as well. Uh, as for what works, I, I think I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. Um, we need to go up the Chinese uh, financial institutions, the banks. Uh, the, the, the sanctions that have been imposed on the Chinese entities have showing some results. Um, in some of their public filings, the Chinese suppliers are complaining that they're losing money uh, as a result of U.S. sanctions. And also, this is the way that you can put pressure on the people. In the past, uh, Xi Jinping, much like Putin, made people happier through materialistic satisfaction. And once that uh, becomes a pocketbook issue for the Chinese, they're not happy. Look at their faces in the last uh, three, four months. Uh, even in my own mother's situation, her building has been under uh, COVID lockdown uh, more than 100 days now. People are not happy. People even trying to find a food to eat. So that will be a one area to put pressure on the regime. They care about how they portray it in public. They also care about their health, health of their economy. The other piece that we need to look at is to go after the network. We have been uh, sanctioned, able to sanction the top people, but we need to look into their network. That's how you get their attention. And also, we should also make it uh, impossible for businesses to continue business as usual. We need to create a reputational uh, risk, investment risk, and legal risk. The legal risk is already there, but we need to use consumer activism to put pressure on the businesses so that the individuals in the boardroom 
or in the uh, investors' uh, uh, meetings get a message that the consumers are not going to be or won't be, uh, continue to be complicit. In the end, we are complicit. American investors are investing in the Chinese high-tech to this day. American consumers are still buying uh, slave labor-produced products. The United States still remains to be the largest export destination for Xinjiang products. So it's the same thing in Europe. So we have to find, we have to identify where it's. Also, we should go after their technological uh, uh, monopoly. Uh, dominance in the international community. Why don't we create uh, alliance with the countries that are uh, investing a lot of money on R&D? We share our uh, engineering uh, invention results. Why don't we also uh, establish alliance on the countries that are specifically focusing on AI, artificial intelligence? We need to identify. It does not have to be a kind of a, a, a formal organization, kind of a loose uh, issue-specific alliance will get a, get a really, really positive outcome. Uh, and, and it will be a powerful message to the uh, Chinese showing that America still is a powerful country. Well, thank you, Nuri. I want to thank all the panelists for an amazing discussion. I could go on for another 45 minutes, but I don't think the Bush Institute wants us to. But thank you very much. And let's give it a round of applause. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To watch or hear more conversations from the Struggle for Freedom Conference, visit bushcenter.org slash struggle for freedom. To learn more about the Bush Institute's freedom and democracy policy work, visit bushcenter.org slash freedom and democracy.